And welcome to the fifth episode of the Risk Management Magazine podcast. My name is Bill Coffin, publisher and editorial director of Risk Management Magazine. And with me is my editorial crew, Emily Holbrook. Hey, how's it going? Jared Wade. What's happening? And Morgan O'Rourke. Hello. Thanks again for listening. Uh, we've got some cool topics for you this time around. Uh, I think we'd like to start off first with uh, a topic that's getting a whole lot of news, which is the various auto recalls, right, over at Toyota and yeah. uh, some other brands. Correct, Emily? Toyota has recalled millions of cars. I'm sure you guys have heard of this in the news. You know how many they've recalled? No, I'd say nine, 9 million, wasn't it? Was it? I have 4.5. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on the defect because they had the sticking gas pedals. That's what I'm referring to, the sticking gas pedals. There's there something else? There was a floor mat recall earlier in the year that that, that, well, that was, was, that was kind of related. November, the floor mats were sticking, were causing people to stick the Right, stick the gas pedal. I guess it was like two separate acceleration problems, right. I guess, right? But the sticking gas pedals were the most recent large one, right? <coughs> yes. Yeah. 4.5 million recalled because of that. Um, and they're even looking into the Lexus line. They're thinking, you know, that line is defective as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been going on for about a, a week, I would say. And this today was the first time that uh, Toyota's president, uh, Akio Toyota, <laughs> <laughs> Toyota is last name with a D-A, D- not Yeah, he's D-A. like the great-grandson. like he was born to okay. be Toyota. The founder. Um, it's the first time he stepped forward to comment on this. And well, I that was because the, uh, the Prius also had brake problems now, too. Yeah. I mean, just one thing after another right. in this company. And it's the first time he's coming forward to to basically apologize and take responsibility for this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's d- uh, due mostly because of pressure from the U.S. Uh, Transportation Security Authority. Yeah. Safety. Safety Authority. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ray LaHood. <laughs> he contacted Mr. Toyota. Well, and, well um, it, it can't be a very good. Him. It can't be a very good sign when the when the chief executive of a company has to come out and make a public statement like this. Because I remember the last time, uh, the last time I saw something along this line was when um, Jack Nasser, who was the head of Ford, came out during that nasty Ford uh, and then Bridgestone Firestone mm-hmm. recall fiasco, where it's like neither company wanted to accept responsibility and they kept throwing it on each other. And finally, I remember Nasser came out on some pretty high profile television advertisements to kind of say. Look, we're dealing with this. It's okay, but by that time, his ju- he was out of the company. Shortly afterwards, the company stock tanked, sales tanked. The co- the entire company took a beating. I mean, by that time, it was sort of a sign that things had already gone from bad to worse, and that you know it just kind of reminded you how much sooner it would have been. It would it should have been that yeah. this guy got that public about it. Yeah, this is going to aff- affect uh, Toyota on several different fronts. I mean, obviously the safety issues, but the fact that um, the chief executive. Would not come forward and without probing from you know other. Well, they were they were really slow with the the, the uh, gas pedal problem. A lot of people criticized them for being slow to respond to the complaints, and it took I think it actually took somebody you know the government actually saying, <coughs> yeah you need to recall these before you know anything happens like an actual like mandate to do it like they weren't really sitting they weren't not not really intending to go forward or anything. So you got to you know they're dealing with a perception that not only are their cars not safe, but the company is now slow to respond to the needs of their customers. And this, the CEO came out and seemed very contrite 
yeah. of, and you know, knowing that, uh oh, that it's time to go into damage control as best right. as we can because every line seems to be, uh, you know, that now there's a problem with multiple mm -hmm. lines. Yeah, they've had to suspend sales, um, so it's really affecting their sales and their reputation right now. I, I've heard they've actually taken the step of of suspending production at their facilities for for a week, which is unprecedented. Uh, for that company. I don't know if other automakers have ever been forced to that kind of situation, but I know that it's a, it's a first for, for this one. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, just think about the startup cost of getting the, the lines rolling again. That's a pretty huge thing, and it speaks to the magnitude of the problem, um, you know, in terms of, of any kind of business continuity problem, but certainly as far as recalls go, this is definitely going to be one for the history books once it's I mean, all shaken Considering the out. popularity of Toyota in this, in, the, in this country, I mean, yeah, I don't have any idea of what the actual stats are, I mean, but I know it's obviously top three, if well, not number one. Well, I, I think it's number one. Is it? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I'd read a newspaper article earlier earlier this week that um, and this is sort of you know, sort of punditry, you know, going off about the topic, but noting that <clears throat> that this could be larger than just a simply a Toyota problem. That you know, you know, it recalls at Honda or something or some other Japanese automaker could turn this into a a problem seen as just a Japanese automaker problem. Um, rather than just one company, and I mean, it, it seems like an unscientific and an unfair way to look at the look at the wider wider thing. I can't imagine there's a lot of causalities in how uh, different Japanese automakers make their cars that would create similar defects of you know you, you know at, at the same period of time. But um, as far as I mean, we I mean at the magazine we talk about reputation risk management all the time. Right. And it's one of those weird sort of ephemeral topics that's kind of hard to put a dollar value on. But when you talk about a public company like this one. Um, you know, you've got share price is going down. You've got dealerships that aren't selling cars right now. You've got people who are coming out of, starting to come out of a recession, looking perhaps to buy a new car that you know they're not going to look at Toyota first and foremost after they've heard this. Um, just, just you just talk to people offhand, and I mean, they don't know what brands are actually affected. They just know Toyota cars are now dangerous. You know, and I, I mean, I, I own a Toyota, and people you keep stay, it, and, 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 and people keep asking me when am I going to get it, get it, you know, refitted. It's not part of the recall. My, the brand I have is a different, is an unaffected one. Um, but but people think Toyota, they think you know you know un runaway acceleration. Well, so. That's what it is. It, that's really what it, it, it's like when the uh, when all the car companies I'm probably saying I think it was like when Saturn was just before it went bye bye. Mm -hmm. You know they were trying to sell and they had all those commercials. There was the one with the guy with the shiny green shirt that kept annoying the hell out of me because it was like one of those shiny green shirts and it really bugged me because it was on every football game. And I don't remember, <laughs> but I just remember how like how they were like, yeah, we want you back as customers, but the whole time I'm like, who would buy a Saturn knowing? The line is possibly going to disappear, even though that's fine. It'll still be serviced and all that. You're not interested in spending money on a car that you don't see having a future. Yeah. For the very, I mean, there's so many car companies out there. It's narrowing down your choice. Is I mean, I, I read at one point that the worst made American car now is probably among one of the best of of you know comparatively speaking to like cars ten years ago. Just the standard of of oh of, right the standard of, of manufacturing yeah is is that much better mm -hmm. so really every car you're going to get is probably better than whatever car you're driving if you're in the mood you know in the yeah, mood yeah. for a new car so narrowing down those choices is you you just use the most ridiculous kind of like eh I don't like the name type stuff sometimes just to get down <laughs> to five as opposed to shopping for fifteen yeah so if you knock Toyota right out of the mix there's a lot of other places to go well I think we saw I I can't remember the exact quote from uh, Mr Toyota there but I think he was talking about even trust. In, in one of his quotes saying that, you know, it's going to be hard for us to regain trust or something like that. Yeah. And, and yeah, it, it sucks for Honda and, uh, you know, maybe some of the other Japanese manufacturers that, you know, just by proxy will be lumped in a little bit, you know. Mm -hmm. The <coughs> same thing with maybe, like, you know, Chrysler might not have been quite as affected with the bailouts and having terrible, right. you know, things. But everyone was like, oh, U.S. auto manufacturing is in the toilet. So no matter who you are, you're going to get lumped into that. And the yeah. same thing, this will probably go 
you know, people who aren't really reading the news quite as closely, all they heard was, you know, Japanese auto manufacturing has brake problems or has, you know, gas acceleration problems. So or even be, just the idea that there's questions, period. I mean, you read one article that way, you don't even have to read the rest of it to think, well, I'll buy something else. Right. I'll buy a Hyundai. I'll buy a Ford. Yeah. You know? so. And we saw, you know, with like AIG, too, even, you know, being a terrible um, – mismanaging their finances and being so caught up in the CDOs and all the financial collapse stuff and then all the other insurance companies that didn't have much to do with it kind of got lumped in as like oh the insurance companies are helping to bring down the financial system when yeah yeah, really it was just AIG and you know maybe not only that it was only as we've said before it's only one division of AIG so the rest of AIG gets you know lumped into its own feelings I mean that's more fair than others but still well it it, it really tends to come back to the to the, the default perceptions people have of a particular kind of product or a particular kind of industry or service. I mean, we talked about AIG in the in, in Joe Public's eyes. They're, they're already hardwired to villainize the insurance industry because it's an industry that they have come to not like because of the nature of the insurance transaction. And the specifics of it are beyond the average person on the street. They don't understand how it really works, so it just befuddles them, and they don't care to know. So they just it's easy just to go, you know what? They're off doing something nefarious, and so given any provocation, they're likely to go, yeah, they, they're up to no good, obviously. Um <clears throat> And with an automaker, you've got you know a similar similarly important set of preconceived notions. I mean, you're in a, I mean, America is probably the most car crazy country on the planet. I mean, it's just impossible to get mass transit off the ground in this country. I mean, people are so in love with their with their cars. I mean, I mean, just just the other day, my my in laws were telling me about how you know they had some friends come over uh, for dinner, and it was so cold outside. They were two doors down. They literally got in their car and <laughs> and drove two doors down because they didn't want to walk Jersey. in the cold, right? Yeah, 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 it's, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah, it's, it's Jersey for you. But I mean, only in America would you. I mean, would yeah. you have a, a culture that's so into, you know, you know, just personal transportation. So when you have a situation like this, <clears throat> you have a a really major safety issue and and a, and a product recall issue. Yeah, I no, guess you know, brakes are probably a good thing for your car to have. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, work. no, I never use mine personally, but I mean, I would, I hear they're good. And if the brakes aren't working. The one thing you don't want to have is a, a <laughs> gas pedal, gas pedal. That, won't, <laughs> yeah. that won't stop. Exactly. No, exactly. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but you know, w- w- when you have that, when you have that kind of situation, though, it automatically triggers a really strong response amongst your consumer base. I mean, people yeah. really take seriously even the smallest issues regarding their cars. I mean, a, re- a car recalls. I mean, any kind of product recall is a big deal. From a risk management's perspective, I mean, there's huge costs involved. There's huge costs you could be avoiding by doing it properly, but there's media relations, there's investor relations, all sorts of moving parts in this sort of thing. No pun intended. Um, <clears throat> you know, but, but, but there's all sorts of components in in a in a, in a product recall that determines whether or not it's going to be successful or if it's going to be unsuccessful. Yeah. And and the nature of certain products, like like um, like when you have uh, like juvenile products, like a baby crib or something like that, or food or automobiles. I mean, you've got to handle it really just right and Watching Toyota go out in, in the public about this kind of reminds you this is sort of crisis management 101, which is remember the media, you know, and know how to engage them properly. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if it's too late for him to have engaged it properly or not. Yeah, I, I think mean, the I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really engaging. I, I'm not passing judgment on that. I'm just saying that it, it does draw to mind though that, you know, if you have a situation so bad that it requires a chief executive to get out in front of the global media to make a statement, then it, it just underscores the need for any company, big or small, to have that kind of media plan in pra- in place and really just to practice it. I mean, I know it feels weird to practice these things, but executives right. have to get in the, the practice of doing dry runs and, and speaking in public, speaking to media, and knowing how to how to address this sort of thing when the time comes because you're not going to have that much time to prepare when a crisis I think a lot of the question though, though, whether or not the uh – it was quick enough right. to yeah, get exactly. out in front of it. But what's interesting is I was reading, I think it was reading one of the articles in the Times, and they pretty much quoted a lot of what he was saying. And there was a certain 
even though it's an article somebody written, you didn't hear the speech or anything. It's there was a feeling of like sincerity mm-hmm. because they even quoted. There's a quote in there, and it's unique because you don't know. But they quoted even him trying to. I guess he's obviously not you know a native English speaker. Mm-hmm. So one of the quotes was in you know acknowledged broken English, like him trying to say that Toyota's of you know has a culture of safety and stuff. But there's a certain level of sincerity to someone just doing everything he can. You almost get a feeling like this guy really feels bad about the whole thing because every coach right. has had that feeling of. I really do feel bad about this to the point of like embarrassment, personal embarrassment, yeah, yeah. and I we want to do the right thing. So that might be the type of thing that actually might overcome the perception that maybe Toyota was a little slow to respond. Mm-hmm. If they then in t- then now respond effectively, quickly, and in a way that makes people go, yeah. "All right, we forgive him for that. They're doing the right thing now." Yeah, yeah. But hindsight, you know, a devil's advocate. You know, he might also already be too late. I mean, five days of media True. scrutiny on the company already went by and yes, I agree with that. is anyone going to care about this story next week other than Toyota owners? Yeah. You know, or like, you know, the people. Well, the other thing too is you know, and then they'll do a, a investigation into the brakes or the, you know, gas pedals and all that stuff and there will be some sort of a determination a month from now and that will be, you know, page six, you know, Well, the, the other th- the problem too is you have, if you've got, you've got the brakes which were a big deal, you know, the initial, now you've, no, I'm sorry, the gas pedal sticking was a big deal like a couple, you know, in the last couple of weeks. Mm. But then the more you, no matter what, how sincere, I guess, as I'm contradicting myself, if you keep having reports of problems, because like, you know, now you've got another different, a different problem entirely with brakes. And what if there's, you know, another problem with, I don't know, ejector seats or something in two (laughs) weeks from now. There's just at some point where you just go, well, that company's flawed, period. Yeah. I don't care what your disaster management is. If everything seems to be going wrong, you might just have a problem. Well, I think it was in like the early 90s, I think it was, where Audi had an issue where... Um, there was a high-profile case where someone, supposedly they had claimed their reverse just, like, uh, enacted when they were in neutral or something. It just started going reverse. I remember and this. They backed over someone. I think it was a teenage girl or something like that. I can't, I can't remember the details, so excuse me if I get that wrong. But someone died. Someone got run over by right. the car, and it was this huge issue, and it went on for a long time. And it turned out that it was not a problem with the car at all. It was a completely user error and but it really didn't matter like it, the the story was so ingrained in people's mm-hmm. mind like to the point where you know 18 years later or whatever you're like oh yeah i remember out either yeah know, right they have uh issues with killing people yeah you know and so but it does but now and then audi audi became a nice good car company you know later and now they're yeah. one of the luxury brands in our company so or in our country so it kind of goes to show too like how tedious all this stuff is toyota is the one of the biggest car companies in the mm-hmm. country now but what if popular opinion turns on them really quickly mm-hmm. yeah you know, five years from now yeah, they might be, you know, Kia or something, you know, <laughs> quality. Well, contrition certainly goes a long way, and and it it, it does a lot to kind of tone down the, the notion to to villainize a company for having you know a flawed manufacturing process or or whatever it is actually created the problem. Um, but you know something you mentioned, Jerry, which is which is really important to keep in mind in today's day and age, um, even more so than it was ten you know, ten years ago with an Audi situation or twenty you know some odd years ago, like when you had the Tylenol you know re- recall, is that. Right now, you know, we we have a real kind of a fire and forget media environment where the the speed at which news stories are created, disseminated, and consumed by 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 the end user, that that cycle is so short now that there's just enough time to get a story out and to, to make a statement that goes out there for pe- for secondary pundits to sort of talk about it and redigest it, and then and then the story is gone and it's forgotten, and then something else comes on top of it, and all that. All that's left for the average media consumer is they're kind of battered by this constant series of waves of stories. And, yeah, they get the notion that, yeah, Toyota had a big problem, lots of recalls, you know, cars that don't stop going, and it kind of goes away. And 
if people, if, if manufacturers are going to expect to use that same media to get an explanation out down down the line of like how things were fixed or how things were different or how things weren't as bad as you thought they were, I've got to believe there's got to, the ratio for time and energy spent to correct a story, it's got to be 10 or 20 to 1 to the time to get that story out initially. Sure. And this Toyota story is all over the planet right now. So if Toyota really wants to repair the damage done to its reputation on top of all the actual product recall things that have to be done, I mean, you're talking an extraordinary expense in terms of media engagement, in terms of manpower actually done at the company, in terms of actual costs as for advertising, for for marketing, for whatever else. I mean, this is a massive thing beyond what you might normally even see as an insurable risk. At the very least, you can assume that you're going to see some commercials of you know with with CEOs like they. I think it was who was doing that was it GM or whoever recently. Like I know we did bad things, but now uh, we're good and. Oh right! So that well, over the um, past year, with a lot of the cars. shortly after the bailout money yeah. went around, and, and there was like right. a lot of these public mail culpas. You have to see that because that seems to be the uh, the style, uh, yeah, you know, the popular style to handle a thing is to get on there. You'd be like Domino's or somebody going, "Yeah, our pizza's terrible, but we fixed it." You know that type of commercial. <laughs> <laughs> but we fixed it. But at the same time, the, that if they would have gotten out of the head out of out ahead of the story, they wouldn't have to do any of it. Maybe they wouldn't have to do that. So I think it kind of speaks to the point yeah. of like inside your corporation at this point. And I think there still are some stories that you should almost ignore, depending on what mm-hmm. the issue is. You know, and it's a really kind of fine line whether or not you should get out ahead of the story and really have a statement about it and try wow. to correct it. Yeah. Or you should just kind of say nothing about it. Yeah. You know, I think well, there's probably start those cases. But so in someone inside that company, it's probably not the CEO, needs to make that decision within the first couple hours. Right. You know and, what I mean? And, like, and that, that's where it gets back to crisis management. You need to be management. on the news the next morning. Absolutely. You, know? you need to be – there's probably – I mean – depending on where the problem starts and where the media is going to start reporting it, because you do have actual physical time differences. If the problem's first detected, say, in Japan, you've got as many times, you know, it's 9 o'clock in the morning in Japan, you got to figure out how much time you got between then and when they start reporting news in New York you know, or London. Um, so, yeah, so that time frame is, is, is awfully short. The thing is, with a problem like this, you got to wonder how, how far can you actually get in front of the story when you have this kind of a, the problem is so persistent and affects so many people. It's an actual mechanical process. It's not just a perception. It's an actual problem involved. You've got government reporting going on. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that requires a lot of heavy lifting. And, I mean, it, it, it can be done, though. Like, I remember, gosh, had to be 10 or 15 years ago. Do you guys remember there was a fake, there's a scare um, that hypodermic needles were showing up in Pepsi cans? Remember this? No, but it sounds familiar. Like, right. It always seems to be that type of thing. What, what had happened was there a, a report went out that somebody had found a hypodermic, like, like a little syringe, in, a, in an unopened can of Pepsi. They popped open the can and there's needles in there. And they reported it, and very, very quickly, Pepsi got right out in front of the story. And it was a media blitz. I mean, I had, I think this probably happened when I was in college. It's kind of like a pre-internet sort of media story, so the speed of things probably were a little bit different than what would have happened today. But the point is that Pepsi, from the very beginning, assist, asserted that there was no possible way this could have happened. They knew their manufacturing processes. They knew there's nothing nothing as large as a, as a needle could have gotten into a can intact. And, and then gotten filled and sealed. This is this almost certainly had to be a scam of some sort. And they went so far. I remember seeing on the front page of like major newspapers these really well rendered schematics furnished by Pepsi of how their actual canning process works. And you can see step by step how it works. And just looking at it, you can go, 
how is a syringe going to get in that can if it if it if it feels like this? You know, and very quickly they're able to keep the public perception from turning against the brand as an unsafe one. As it turns out, um, yeah, it was a couple people who decided that they were going to um, scan Pepsi and try to get a fraudulent, some sort of like legal, se- their plan I think was to get some sort of legal settlement off Pepsi, Pepsi for this. Wasn't a couple Canadian guys who also tried to put a mouse in a beer too at one point? More <laughs> the Elsinore Brewery, that. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, this is a movie reference, Emily. I know oh. you won't get it. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, that sounds fun. What McKenzie Brothers. Uh, Stra- Strange, Strange Brew. I've Look seen Strange Brew. Look you know, up. why do you have to lie? You, I really have. You haven't seen Strange Brew. Yeah, I've seen it. Then, Any, and Beer League and anything involving beer. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Shh, don't say anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah this, is, this is the part where you stop talking. Okay. <laughs> I still want to go through my top ten recalls. Ah, okay, top ten recalls. Real quick. What do you, uh, yeah, we what should, do you have? We, we'll do this quick. Yeah. Sure. All right. What's, what do we think is number These one? These are the uh, uh, top ten product recalls go. ever. Of all time? Start from ten. Build Start up. Start from ten. Now, these are coming from where? Who who originally reported these? This is from Time. Excellent. Yes. Uh, the first one is... Wait, wait, hold. Before you get started... Let me make sure this goes in order. Jerry, what, what, what do you think the number one product recall of all time is? Uh, the Tylenol. Late, early 80s one. I think it probably was like tires or some car-related thing. I, I, I'm going to go with Tylenol as well. I, I mean, I remember that like that, that was like a major childhood event. That ruined a whole Halloween for me, man. That was that terrible. Was you should all yeah. cry about it. It's cars. Yeah, shut up. You're two... Tylenol. Wasn't that, that was completely that was a complete fake too, right? No, 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 no. Somebody had actually poisoned Tylenol. No, Tylenol no, recalled because there, there was a poisoning going on. Yeah, but it was a poisoning that was it was like it was somebody planted it. Not, yes, no, not no, 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 no. Somebody tampered. Yeah, it was a it's tampering. That was a product thing. tampering, not a product defect thing. That's a very, very important distinction. Yes, and, and and to Tylenol's credit, they did a lot. You know, much like the Pepsi thing years later. I mean, they did a lot to to educate the public in terms of you know what had happened, what they're doing to make things safe yeah. again. Well, that's like and a test case. You, you whenever you whenever you hear about product recalls, it's the best case scenario you could do. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much, you, you know, when you consider what had been done to the product and what they did afterwards to make it safe once more, and how they reengaged the public and reasserted the the viability of the brand. Yeah, Tylenol did. I mean, they did pretty much everything right as far as you can do. So I got to believe that's got to be the number one product recall of all time, as far as. So Emily, well, this, let well, us know what time is. Time is telling us what is number one. It has, no, it has number one as the one we just talked about. Toyota's. Oh really? Faulty pedals. Yeah. Which all is right. astonishing. Now, now, has anybody actually been hurt from all this? Well, how, many, all how many? How many recalled then, according to time? What was the? What was it? What are the numbers we're looking at? Um, let's see. Second recall in three months on four point one million vehicles. All right. Uh, in total, more than nine million. It says. There you go. There you Jared go. Jared wins. Ding. Walter. <laughs> well, the, well, the transportation secretary over the weekend, I think, was like, "You should just stop driving them." Which is, by a pretty, the way, I wanted a pretty point. remarkable comment from a government. <laughs> I want official. to point out that I said it was car related, even though I said it was something to do with tires. Car all related right, is much closer to Tylenol. You, Bill, and Jared are wrong. I'm half right. Number Emily two. Number two. Cribs. Do you remember uh, the oh, crib uh, recall uh, after that, that, was that MTV, MTV show? Which should never happened. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. All sorts of refrigerators <laughs> full of uh, champagne. Yeah. <laughs> this was in September 2008. Uh, almost like half a million cribs were recalled after. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had relatives call me up over that one. I'm like, yeah, you know my kids are like eight now, right? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> like, you know that you got a crib problem? Like, you know you have an age problem? My daughter says it's not a crib them. in years. <laughs> um, number three, we've actually blogged about this on the old blog platform. Um, the China's uh, baby formula, baby 
Milk. Oh, right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was bad. That they actually sent people killed to, a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, killed a lot. they actually sent people to jail over that. And, uh, they didn't call. You know, I am too. They actually, no. I think they made, with I a lot of the, the product safety did. head in China when yeah. all those recalls were, were happening two years ago, they executed them. Oh, did they really? Yeah, they don't mess around. No, they don't. Yeah. I have heard they also build a family for the bullet, which strikes me as particularly hardcore. That's that I would imagine if they, unless I mean, by the way, thanks. Assuming <laughs> they still f- shoot people as a form of and not like use injection or. I, I, or I don't know. Talk about tangents, huh? Yeah, really. This is a fun one. Go ahead. Number, number four. four. Fun, huh? The Ford Pinto. Oh, oh yeah, the Pinto. Right. In 1978, Ford recalled 1.5 million Pintos. Jeepers. Because they used to blow up on contact because the gas, stash, gas tanks were in the back. Yeah, yeah. Issue with the fuel tank. Yeah. Morgan used to have one. He still has it. I did. Well, <laughs> it was partic- no, well, no joke. We Seriously? actually did have a Pinto. Really? Well, well, it didn't well, blow well, up, well, though. What was particularly interesting about the Pinto, though, is that that was one of those... those, those um, Great examples of how there was a problem that had been identified, and they knew what it would take to fix it, and they determined that the legal fallout from from not fixing it was actually a easier cost to bear right. than the cost of actually taking it, you know, fixing it. Because my understanding is that in the manufacturing process, the um, the metal casting of the various parts led to this little metal spur kind of pointing towards the fuel tank. So it's kind of like this little like spike. Um, sort of pointing at the fuel tank. So if you got rear-ended, it punctured the tank, and that's the reason why you had all those uh-huh. explosions. So all it would take would just be to burr off that, that spike, and the problem would have fixed itself. But they chose not to, and as a result, the problem became exponentially worse. And number four on the recall list. Number five on the recall list. Who knows what it is? Firestorm. <gasps> you are good. Yes. Oh. Ah, Firestorm, there we go. Firestone recall. They recalled 6.5 million tires in the year 2000. That was a fiasco. To me, seems like it seems like it was a lot sooner than that. A lot more recent than that. Yeah, yeah it, 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 like a long time ago. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. it, it seems like it was like 2005 or something. Well, that's because it was. I think there was another. Wasn't there a Chinese tire recall like two years ago? May have been. Yeah. So memories are short. And number six in February of 2008, Department of Agriculture recalled four, 143 million pounds of beef. Uh, after e. coli. Yeah, the California slaughterhouse uh, was accused of improperly butchering downer cattle, or the cattle that can't oh, make yeah. it. Oh, yeah. That was E. coli. That was the, Does uh, it say the name of the slaughterhouse, the company? Um, I remember, remember we talked about no, this. That a different one. This one. This one was the one that they killed that they were they were using bad uh, downer cattle, you know, like, they were like sick cows. Yeah. And there was another one where there was E. coli contaminated and out of Long Island. There was a Topps. Tops, I guess they, but they went out of business for that. That was a smaller yeah. recall. Yeah, yeah, it was mu- yeah, it was much smaller though. Yeah, it doesn't say the uh, the companies, but it said it was the largest meat recall in history. And people still make fun of me for being a vegetarian. Yeah, this yeah. included. They should. This included um, <laughs> meat from cows that had been slaughtered two years prior to this. Oh, come on, really? Mm. Delicious though. Two grill, years. If you grill them, it's like it's like vintage. Yeah. It's like a dr- it's a vintage aged yeah. steak. All right, I'm leaning towards uh, zombie beef. <laughs> zombie beef. Number seven out of ten. Morgan has written about this. Uh, peanuts. Peanut oh, butter. yeah, uh-huh. that was no good. Yeah, that's why I, grind, I killed some people. Yeah, grind your own peanut butter, people. Tastes better anyway. God, you're such a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> Just go to Whole Foods, man. They got the peanut He's grinder right there. It's easy. Jerry who grinds his own peanut butter and drives a hybrid car. <laughs> well, I guess it's gonna hurt. Yeah, okay. He's wearing Birkenstocks in February. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. With socks though, so it's okay. <laughs> it's like Jesus. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> stop. <laughs> Number 8 out of 10, 1982. Anybody? They recalled the whole year? It wasn't that bad. That Was that Tylenol? Finally? Yes, you yes, got it, Yeah. Tylenol recall. 
That that was I mean that was a particularly big moment. That was almost like a cultural history moment because I mean the entire country started questioning if medicine itself off the over the counter was safe because it wasn't just I mean people were questioning ty- not just Tylenol but because as you were saying it was a product tampering thing. Right. They were worried about any kind of consumable that that was supposedly supposed to be sealed. And I remember there's a and there's a huge public information campaign afterwards on on how you know how they're actually going to seal your medicine and all that. And um, well, you know, well, that yeah. led to like product tampering seals, right? Like the plastic and like yeah, even the cotton maybe and stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. The, the, the cotton, but but specifically those those seals, and I think they reform, they redesign how the caps work. I mean, it, it, there's like now multiple safeguards on over-the-counter medicine, you know, to, to prevent, the, you know, so you can tell if something's been tampered with or not. So that crime has never been solved, by the way. Oh. Morgan, thanks CSI. <laughs> Go ahead. Have anything else? Or wait, was that nine? No, it was eight, right? That was eight. Number nine. Is Merck's Vioxx yeah, nightmare? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. that was not good. In for such a long time, it seemed like Merck could do no wrong, and then the Vioxx thing just became so huge. Yes, they yeah. paid a total of four point eight five billion. Oh Twenty seven thousand lawsuits. Oh, oh man, that's but then they just made it up with whatever the yeah. next drug was. So we have one last history. Number ten. Number ten would be what? Ten is. Um. Well, this is written. She's already laughing. This uh, yeah, a good I like one. this. I'm gonna read it. Uh, there was bad news in 2002 for anybody who had recently taken a gonorrhea test. Well, more bad news. Pharmaceutical <laughs> giant Abbott la- Laboratories recalled about 750,000 test kits believed to give false negative results. False negative. What does that mean? That's that means that false negative. So you took it. Yeah. You, you thought you were clean, and, you and it turns out you weren't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Morgan, how did this impact your life? Yeah. Uh, I First knew it was account. coming. <laughs> And I mean, honestly, this is a family podcast. I'd have just I'll have everybody out there just think of something really dirty I would have to say in response, and just say that <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be good with it. What's the te- top ten product recalls of all time? Oh. Well, it's very interesting how this one kind of seems to have rocketed right to the to the, to the, to the number one. Yeah. You know, especially, especially since the damage of it is so massive and still has, there's no end in sight. I mean, we don't know. I mean, what the total uh, lawsuit. Element of this may may turn out to be we do not we probably won't know for a full year what the actual public public impact will be in terms of stock price and actual uh, dealership sales and that sort of thing. So it'll you know it's definitely something for us to keep our eyes on, and uh, undoubtedly we'll be covering this more on uh, the blog and in the magazine. And who knows, maybe in future episodes of the podcast as as you know more as events w- warrant exactly as events warrant. So stay tuned. All right. Who likes breakfast? That's my question to all of you. Do you like breakfast, Emily? I love every meal, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Even the ones you eat. I love them too. Jared, do you like breakfast? fantastic. I don't like breakfast myself. I only eat cereal. Or the occasional Thomas's English muffin. Mm. And they're not an advertiser right now, so we're talking from the heart. (laughs) And how. (laughs) And how. Well, it turns out that the company that makes Thomas's English muffins, they won Bimbo Bakeries. Now, I'm going to stop laughing. Come on. <laughs> you should have told us yeah, about that. Yeah, you got called out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, there's evidently less than 10 people in the world who know how to make Thomas's English muffins so that they have the signature nooks and crannies. Mm-hmm. Evidently, it has something to do with the moisture and content and, and I guess what it's made of. And one of these gentlemen is actually leaving the company for hostess. So they're actually going to sue him for what they anticipate will be his revelation of trade secrets to Hostess. 
Now, he hasn't revealed these trade secrets yet. A simple non-disclosure agreement wasn't enough. They had to, like, actually guess not, but go to the mattresses. They are, they are basically saying that there's pretty much, I guess that by suing them, they're basically saying there's no way you're not going to reveal these se that our, our, our nooks and crannies. So we're going to sue you before it happens. Now, it seems like uh, it seems a little strange because he hasn't done anything. Yeah, has he made any comments to suggest that he would even do such a thing? No, but I guess if you were going to reveal some trade secrets, you wouldn't go, yeah, by the way, guys, I know I put my two weeks in. <laughs> guess what? I'm going to do it two weeks. Totally going to give away the secrets. Yeah, right. But evidently, that seems to be the problem. I think it's interesting that there's, first of all, only ten people that know how to make. What are this? What are they suing him for? I mean, what kind of? If he hasn't even, yeah, if he hasn't grounds? even divulged confidential information yet, what kind of damages could there be? It's like for thought th crime or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and evidently, he has signed. He has signed. Or Tom's gonna have like a red ball come down. Tom, <laughs> Tom Cruise, like, uh oh, <laughs> he's gonna <laughs> spill. Get him quick. Well, see, the thing is, he has signed a confidentiality agreement, but according to Hostess, they, they said that he will inevitably disclose to Hostess confidential, confidential information and trade secrets. So they think that not only – they're basically assuming that even though he signed an agreement, it's just inevitable. It's just going to have to happen because I guess their stuff is so great. By dint of the fact that said defendant, <laughs> defendant is a known blabbermouth and cannot keep his yap shut, we are <laughs> confident he will divulge secrets. That's ridiculous. Come well, on. I know it is kind of strange, but I, I – I don't really know what to say. At that about point, that. what's your incentive to not tell? If they're already suing you for it, you may as well just exactly. give it to Hostess and just let it out. Right? I mean, yeah, that would make me want to tell even more. Well, but if you think about it, though, if you're a company, right, and you've got such a tightly guarded secret, whether it's this Colonel special recipe or, or, or these nooks and crannies or whatever you can mm -hmm. think of, I mean, Coca-Cola's formula or something like that, right? And these are those those are big deal stuff. I mean, how do you not? How maybe you have to find a way to prevent things? Like, what what would happen? What would happen if this guy does reveal? Secrets, just in, not even trying to be malicious, just because right. he's a baker and he knows how to bake this. Well, way. there's a lot, well, there's a lot of there's a lot of case you're just case law because for that. Your, your trade secret is out, but right, and right, there's right. nothing you could do about it. So you have to basically wait until it's revealed before you can do anything. At which point, it's already too late. Well, all right, let's now, say I know Hostess this may makes not English be, muffins. Right. Well, Hostess probably makes some. I'm, I'm now I'm now imagining a ring ding with nooks and crannies. But mm. go ahead. It's delicious. <laughs> but I mean, like, are Thomas English muffins that much better than anyone else's? That this is like gonna Evidently. ruin their brand completely. Well, they base their entire. I mean, it's it, you know, I said nooks and crannies, and everybody knows what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, it is a so signature. Yeah, but I've never had point. a, a uh, I mean, a uh, English muffin that doesn't have something similar to that. Yeah, right. And I presume I haven't had only Thomas Riss, um English muffins in my life. Are you asking me this question? No, no, no. I'm just saying. Morgan, Morgan, Morgan let me know. About muffins. <laughs> nah, man, 1981, I was there. <laughs> you had a Jimmy Jack muffin. Well, or whatever evidently, they called it. evidently this is a big enough deal to to have to have kind of, I guess, based their their notoriety around. So it must be a good deal. And I mean, you get a muffin, an English muffin. Do you ever have you ever had another English muffin style muffin with little nooks and nooks and I cranes? feel like I have. I don't know. Are they the only people that make them? They're not the only people who make who make English muffins, but they do they do purport to have a unique manufacturing process by which the natural you know nooks and crannies that appear in their English muffins are in fact different than what you find in English muffins elsewhere. I, I I'm can, saying, I, are they different to a material degree to a consumer that it actually matters? Well, I don't I don't know. I know I know Thomas certainly thinks so, and I could tell you a story. I have when I used to work for Best Underwriting Guide some years ago. Uh, one, my boss then, she had written an ar a technical article, you know, basically describing you know the the underwriting risks of a particular you know kind of business. She, she was doing commercial bakeries, and she actually visited uh, Thomas's English muffin plant somewhere in New Jersey, right? And she had to do a to do a site visit to see you know how the manufacturing process works, see what the kind of you know worker safety situations are there, yeah, using it as a test case for a typical commercial 
bakery, right? And she said that they got to the one point where there is the part of the production line where they do the nooks and cranes, whatever it is that they do. She was of the mind that they injected some sort of carbon dioxide into the dough. Yeah, it's evidently a little more. And according to the court documents, I, they've said this no, has or a lot so to do with like the no, ingredients or, or something. And and the manufacturing process, right. not just you know, one thing. But when they got to that part of the production line, she said that not only was she not allowed to go any further and see, it actually like a special part of the facility blocked off by doors, like security doors, where she couldn't go in to see. And that even and they and she goes, well, what if I just got past? And then they're in, indicating that even if they did, like that that area was like closed off by like visual screens, like they really like on the site had taken security measures to prevent people from even seeing how the process is done. That's how closely they guard the secret. So they don't just do that for for marketing's sake. They they do it because they must they must imagine there is some material value to it. Now, how you can prove that value in a court of law strikes me as a, a kind of a, a kind of an, an well, elusive target. But if it's a trade secret, especially if you're doing it from matter. a preemptive standpoint, the guy hasn't even told anything yet. Well, here's here the thing is there's a, I don't know what the case was, but there was a case where this inevitable disclosure doctrine is what they lawyers call it. Mm-hmm. It did it, they had a California case go through last year. I it in the one thing I read about it didn't really say what that was mm-hmm. about, but the California court said no, that's that's not going to happen. He didn't do anything, so we're not going to bust him for it. Not only that, you're going to have to pay his court costs. So right. the company lost. But that's still. But this this case being tried in Pennsylvania, maybe they're going to see it differently. Yeah. And here's here's fun fact. In the meantime, this dude was supposed to leave his job mid January to go work for Hostess, but that he's basically that has all been put on hold. Like he's got a restraining order to work for this new company until this is resolved. So Hostess cannot Ooh. legally hire him until this is handled. Well, he can't legally. Yeah, he can't take his new job. Right. See, now, now this is interesting because now this this strikes me as a situation where if there is no case against this gentleman, he then has grounds to turn Counters- around and countersue yes. for loss of well, wages sure and judge, for you know for anything well, I mean, else. If a judge said, "All right, well, you will grant you the restraining order till we till we judge rule on this," yeah. then I would imagine they would have. But he's to out of a paycheck until then. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, yeah. I don't know how that. that I don't really think that's. Unless, unless hostess says you still have to work here under duress or something. No. I mean, not hostess. I mean, those costs wouldn't the really other bakery. be that much for Thomas Lingers Muffin to pay six months off somebody's salary. It wouldn't well, yeah, right, right, be right. that big of a deal for them to turn around and have to pay that next July or something, you know? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But, you know, but I mean, just as a cash flow thing, if this is somehow impeding the guy's ability to earn. And, and, and I mean, what, what strikes me as amazing about this is just the whole preemptive nature of this lawsuit. I mean, I, I mean... If there is a inevitable a doctrine of inevitability, like you yeah, said, yeah, but it's never actually like I, there's evidently no real successful. Okay, like, like there's still it's never. I, I, there's no at least I haven't. So it's more it's more theory than practice, is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, and believe me, I'm no expert in this. I read it. You know, yeah. I'm just I'm just bringing it up. I'm sure there's somebody who's more of a legal mind than I am will know how viable this is. But it's viable enough that it's been brought up in two different cases, and one of which is going on currently. But all right, well, I'm going back to what I was trying to say before, though. Is like, would it actually like? Obviously, to Thomas English Muffin, it's a bad thing for their trade secret to be out. It's something they closely guard for reasons that they think is like a quality assurance and a, quali- a better quality than anyone else. But if Hostess started making an English muffin that was kind of similar to theirs, would it really like put them out of business? Aren't they a big enough company at this point that they're fine? Like, yeah, like KFC's recipe right now. Mm-hmm. Someone else got it, and they made like some chicken locally. Like It wouldn't matter to KFC. Like They're still... A national chain of it's not like their chicken is so amazingly great that that's their their right, secret right. at this point. You know, the same way with Thomas Ingram muffin, it's pretty good muffin. I'm, I like them, but well, I, I suppose it's all theoretical. I mean, if yeah, Hostess it's not, had it's not this based on the way, I don't think any trade the idea of a trade secret or protecting a trade secret is based on whether or not it's vital to your company. I mean, if you have a secret, you want to preserve it. 
and you i guess i would imagine i don't know i mean it seems like it would be up to the discretion of the company to decide if it's that important yeah well i mean coca-cola like you said any of these things and if you're not into this stuff well of course you're not going to care if somebody else is making one that's identical to it but that's what they base their whole you know company around is this specific flavor taste consistency whatever the secret happens to be or whatever your business happens to be I find this doctrine of inevitability pretty interesting because if it were to be proven or if it were to be actually held, you know, you know actually, you know, applied in a court of law and, and actually lawsuits were won on it, then it strikes me as something that would render essentially not effective any kind of non-disclosure agreement. Because why sign an NDA if there's a doctrine of inevitability out there that basically says no matter what you sign, no matter what your intent, no matter what your personality, whatever, <clears throat> there's no factor involved here that's large enough or more important enough to prevent the fact that you eventually are going to disclose information that is confidential and you should not be disclosing. Well, and see, that, that strikes me as an amazing legal it's argument. It's guilty to, until proven innocent idea, which doesn't seem to work. I mean, who's good, what court's really going to be able to judge the future? Like, you're, yeah. you're going to be a criminal in the future. So, yeah, you're right, exactly. sued now. And I understand the company's viewpoint of saying, yeah, but what can we do to prevent this, really prevent this? Well, it's, it, it strikes Nothing, me because you can't yeah. control human beings doing stupid things. It strikes me as analogous to say suing your insurance company for denying a claim when you, you haven't even had a loss yet. You know, it's like it, it's right. like I know when it comes That's down, true. you're going to deny my claim over you know from wind versus water, and so I'm going to sue you now to get just to get the ball rolling. I mean, I, I, if you apply that's that, the same thing. Yeah, right? I, I mean, when you apply it to other things, it just strike, it just seems ridiculous. But I guess in the realm of you know, uh, you know, trade secrets and 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 high-level IP. There seems to be a different standard applied. I, supposedly, the case is going to be uh, is supposed to reach judgment middle of this month. So I'll keep you posted. I yeah, don't know what the story is, the but I can't. I, I mean, if we all all of us armchair lawyers over here, <laughs> I can't see how it possibly that this the uh, bimbo bakeries can possibly come yeah. out on top on this. I mean, Listen, sorry. I think this shines a bad light on bimbo bakeries too because they're just. Going to assume, you know, people are going to do the worst. Well, I I don't know how diversified their product line is. You know, I don't know that much about them. I I, I mean, I, I know Thomas's. I know there are a couple different kinds of Thomas's English muffin. And, and this is this is just you know winging it here at this point. But maybe this could be one of those things where they figure their product lines are so unified around this this one manufacturing process that if they were to lose it, it would be <clears throat> they wouldn't just be losing one product line. They'd be losing a central component of what makes their entire enterprise unique. And see it as an enterprise risk, as opposed to say Hostess, which has numerous different products, numerous different manufacturing processes, probably numerous different secret recipes. That if they were losing any one, yeah, it would be awful if they lost the Twinkie, but they still have the Ring Ding, the Ho Ho, the you know whatever. You know, perhaps there's a, there's a, there's a, and, and I'm, 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 what's driving the driving the, the 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 thought there that we, you know this is such a important thing we can't possibly bear to lose it. Doesn't sound like something that would ever have reached court in the first place, but it did. But it did. That was so things have gone to court over for, for stupider reasons than, than than this. So well, we'll see what happens. Anyway, maybe you should just eat a lot more English muffins or before they somehow get voted out of existence. I don't know how that'll work. <laughs> but maybe the judge will just come in and go, you know what, not only is this stupid, but you're not allowed to make English muffins anymore. Croissants <laughs> <laughs> for everyone. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That makes about as much logical sense as the lawsuit in the first place. that will just about do it for this episode of the risk cast on behalf of myself morgan jared and emily thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for episode six due to come out later this month in the meantime 
If you're looking for daily news, insight, and opinion on all things related to the world of managing risk, then be sure to stop by the Risk Management Monitor blog. That's at riskmanagementmonitor.com. Your story sure to interest and enlighten. Also, check out the January-February issue of Risk Management Magazine, out now. Our cover story is our annual preview of what's in store for the property casualty insurance market. And we also have stories on workplace stress, a multi-generational look at employee communications, the risks of open-source software, and much, much more. If you've not already registered for the RIMS 2010 Boston Annual Conference and Exhibition, then make sure you do so right now. Early bird registration ends soon, and you want to make sure to get the best deals possible for attending the risk management industry's biggest annual event. With more than 400 educational sessions, special events, and some 10,000 attendees to network with, RIMS 2010 Boston is not something you want to miss. Oh, and did I mention that we have Nassim Taleb, uh, author of The Black Swan, as a keynote speaker? Go to RIMS.org for more information. And finally, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that the Risk and Insurance Management Society is turning 60 years old this year. So be sure to stop by rims.org slash 60th anniversary to check out timelines, histories, and more. Once again, thanks for listening. I'm Bill Coffin, and we'll be back at you in another few days. Until then, I'd like to leave you with some words of wisdom from author Ian Fleming, the guy who created James Bond, who wrote, Once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, and three times is enemy action. He would have made a great risk manager, you know? Well, bye now. <laughs>